Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I thought we'd start this morning with a little audience participation, okay? Um, We're going to see if you can complete the sentence, okay? If you can finish uh, the phrase. So I'm going to give you the first part and then just say it out loud, the second part, if you can think of it, okay? Here it goes. You better watch out. You better not cry. Very good. Why? Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Very good. You know that song. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there is something wrong with that song. Now, you probably never even thought about it, but there's something missing there. There's a concept in that song that is missing something. It's something that is missing, I think, because it is something that is so foreign to our, our normal way of thinking. It is something that is missing in our culture. It is missing in our society. It is missing in our world. It is missing in many of our relationships. It is missing in many of our experiences. Sadly, too often it's missing in the church where it ought to be the most plentiful. What's missing is grace. See, according to that song, this wise and wonderful, good and benevolent Santa gives gifts if you're good. If you make the nice list, not the naughty list. So you better watch out. See, that's the way our society operates. That's the way our relationships operate. If you do this, then I'll do that. If you will be nice, I will give you a gift. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. You get what you deserve. And that is completely foreign to God's way of expressing himself. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came to bring something that the world had never fully seen before. We've been looking at John's gospel, how Jesus came as the word and he had a message to speak to us. He came as the light to show us God himself. And the message and that light that was shining is all about this one word, grace. Take up 1 John, if you would, open your Bibles to that. Uh, Not 1 John, John 1. We're just going to look at three verses this morning, four verses this morning, excuse me. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of the fullness, out of his fullness, we have all received Grace in place of grace already given. 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Word became flesh, full of grace and truth. From him we have received one grace on top of another, grace for grace, grace in place of grace already given. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is this grace? What is this thing that is missing in our relationships? What is this thing that's missing in our world? I want to kind of unpack that a little bit this morning. And John says up front, this is the whole reason he wrote this gospel. And so if you read through John's gospel, which I've encouraged you to do, which those of you who haven't, I'm going to give you a grace this morning, but I'll encourage you to keep doing it, okay? Keep starting, do something, okay? But because as you read through John's gospel, what he is showing us is Jesus displaying grace. So we're going to look at a couple of interactions that Jesus had with different people and how that grace was displayed so that, so that we would not just understand it, but so that we would grasp it and embrace it and maybe, just maybe, learn how to extend it. Because I believe this concept, though it is so missing from our world, it is the thing our world needs the most. And if we could clearly grasp it and embrace it, and begin to live it. It is transformational. So we're going to unpack it a little bit. And we're going to start kind of where John left off. And we're going to work our way forward. We're going to start back in verse 17. And it's all about this. That God's grace. And he says you've got to understand this. If you don't understand this. You don't get grace at all. Grace is never deserved. It is always given. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, one of the greatest um, misunderstandings that we have, I think, is this relationship between the law and grace. Because we think of them as they are opposites, but they are not. Grace and, and the law are not opposite concepts. In fact, in fact, the law was an expression of God's grace. Now, we think of that. That doesn't make sense, but it does if you look at it in context. Because God gave the law to a people that he had already graciously called to himself. And you don't think of the law as being full of grace, but if you think a little bit about when God gave that law to those people, this was a people who had never been a nation. They had been a family an extended family, a growing family. In fact, a family that almost by just sheer numbers became a nation, but they were never a nation. They were a family of slaves in Egypt. They had no government. They had no law. They had no judicial system. They had no, all they knew was slavery. All they knew was this is what you do. And if you don't, you get a beating. That's all they'd ever known. And they'd never known this God who had called them, not in a personal way, because all the gods that they had really ever seen were the gods of Egypt, the God of the Nile, the God of fertility, the God of death, the God of... And there were hundreds and hundreds of gods. And they never knew, never really understood this God who had called them their own. And he calls them out of this slavery. He leads them out of their captivity in that slavery. And he says, now, you are my people. We are in a relationship And this is what the relationship looks like. And that's when he gave the law. The law was never intended as a means to earn a standing with God. 
The standing with God was already there. The law was never meant to give us a relationship with God because the relationship was there before the law. God had already called them his people. God had already called them out of their slavery. But what he said now is, this is how we're going to define the relationship. There's a relationship here, but relationships all have boundaries to them. I am married. This summer will be 35 years. I have, we've been married. Yeah. <laughs> Applaud my wife. It has nothing to do with me. I tell you. Maybe you were applauding. You know me, okay? But here's the deal. When, when we entered into that relationship, certain behaviors became accepted. And certain behaviors became denied. Because I entered into this relationship, this covenant relationship with this woman and said, I will be faithful to you and only to you for better, for worse, sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, as long as we both shall live. And that means, that means that I don't go out on a dinner date with other women. Now, yeah, there's a law there, but it's not about the law. It's about the relationship. You see, and when God gave the law, it wasn't to impose a set of rules and regulations. It was to help clarify and define the relationship. That when you enter into this relationship with God, there's certain behaviors that are intrinsic in that relationship. And this is what they look like. And if you operate together as the people of God, as a nation of God, this is how you treat each other. The law was never, ever intended to be the means of attaining a relationship with God. And yet we have so ingrained with, uh, in us this get-what-you-deserve mentality. That if I live by the law, God will love me and, and smile upon me. And if I break the law, he's going to punish me. It is so deeply, deeply ingrained in us. I came across a, a letter to Santa um, written by a young boy. He wrote this in his letter. Dear Santa, there are three boys living in our house. Jeffrey is two, David is four, and Norman is seven. Jeffrey is good most of the time. David is good some of the time. And Norman is good all of the time. P.S. I am Norman. <laughs> That's our mentality. Don't pass me by because I'm good all the time. There was a man who came to Jesus. He was a good all the time type of guy. His name was Nicodemus. We're told, we're told in scripture that he was, he was not only a Pharisee, which Pharisees kind of get a bad rap because of their opposition to Jesus, but these were well-meaning people for the most part. They, the, 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 the name Pharisee means purist. They wanted to be as much as possible to live purely before God, to live purely under the law. And, and, and Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Supreme Court and the Pope and, and all of that all mixed into one. It was a small elite group. And he had risen to this because he was recognized by his peers of being one of the exceptional of, among them. And, and he wasn't just an, an accuser like some of the Pharisees were with Jesus. He came to Jesus. We know he was sincere because he came to Jesus sincerely asking questions. 
There was rumors about, this was early in Jesus' ministry, and there were rumors about this guy and what he was teaching and what he was saying about the kingdom of God. And, and, and Nicodemus comes to him and he says to him, I don't want to listen to just the rumors. I want to hear from you. He wanted to know God. He wanted to know what this relationship with God should look like. He wanted to know if this was a rabbi from God, then he wanted to learn all that he could from him. If there was anybody, if there was anybody who satisfied that good all the time criteria, it would be Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus talks to him, but Jesus doesn't tell him about how well you keep the law. In fact, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. You must be born again. In fact, he said, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, wait a minute. What about all this rule keeping I've done all of my life? Just doesn't cut it. Because as much as you think you have kept it all, you haven't. And God doesn't grade on a curve. All of your rule keeping, as sincere and as, as devoted as it has been, doesn't cut it. And, and in fact, Jesus said to him, you, you ought to know. You're a teacher of the law. You ought to know that the law doesn't make it with, us, with God. You ought to know that you can't keep all the rules. If there's anybody who has tried Nicodemus, it's you. And you ought to know you don't live up to it. Something changes. Something has to change because the rule keeping is not going to make it happen. If, if there's anything that the law makes clear is that you cannot earn and you cannot deserve a, a standing with God because you cannot possibly obey it. And yet, and yet this earn it mentality infects everything that we do, every relationship that we have. How should grace-covered Forgiven people act. What should grace covered forgiven people accepted by God, by their, not by their own merit? What should we do? Here's a thought. What if? What if we learned to love the undeserving? What if we learned how to truly love the unlovable? Let's take it out of theory. Let's bring it back into your workplace or your neighborhood. The next door neighbor who parks his big old Winnebago in the driveway. And every time you back out of your garage and you see that big old thing and it's a filthy mess and it's sitting there and ruining the neighborhood, bringing down the property values. And that little twinge inside of you says, I wish he would, I want to torch that thing. What if, what if you loved him and loved his Winnebago? What if you forgave the person who hurt you so badly, whether they asked for it or not? What if, what if, what if you released a debt that was owed to you and canceled it completely? What if? Because, you see, that's grace. That's grace. See, the opposite of grace is not the law. The opposite of grace is judgmentalism and condemnation. 
Because judgmentalism, condemnation says, there's no hope for you. (laughs) You don't deserve this. You don't deserve my forgiveness. You don't deserve my love. You don't deserve anything from me. In fact, you owe me. Pay me back. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Maybe, maybe his church, maybe his people, maybe us grace-covered, forgiven, accepted, redeemed people, maybe, just maybe, we should not do what Jesus himself refused to do in judgment and condemnation. Something that's missing from our world. Grace is never deserved. Something else about grace, God's grace can never be depleted. It never runs out. It is an endless supply. It's the other thing John says. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Literally, literally translated, it says grace on top of grace. Grace for grace. That's how you know that the, that the law was not about just legalism. It was about grace. But he says, God's grace has always been extended and expanding and growing. And it's just one grace on top of another grace on top of another grace. That is God's grace. It is an endless supply. John is saying, it's like every time we turned around, as we followed him for those three years, every time we turned around, it was grace. It was grace. It was grace to Nicodemus. It was grace to, 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 the, to the banquet MC at the wedding. To provide the best wine and make up for his lack. It was great. Every time we turned around, Jesus was great. There was another time. There was this woman. There was this woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And he was brought to Jesus. He says, this woman was caught. They brought him to Jesus. He said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses commanded to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Caught in the act. It's an open and shut case. <laughs> There's no question here. There's no doubt. There's caught in the very act. And here she is. She's dragged, not she doesn't come willingly like Nicodemus did. She's dragged before Jesus and stood, maybe shuffling, trying to cover herself with what little bit of clothing or blanket she had. And she stands in the middle with all the accusers all around. And Jesus stops, looks down, and draws in the sand. And everybody says, I wonder what he drew in the sand. I wonder what he wrote in the sand. It doesn't matter. What matters is he stopped. And there's this long, prolonged silence. And everybody's wondering, what's he going to say? The accusers are all standing around with the stones in hand. All right, just give us the word. Just give us the word. What's he going to say? Disciples. Now, it's kind of an awkward situation for them. You know, it's just, we were just following along. Now we're in the middle of this whole thing. What's he going to do with this? Long, awkward silence. The woman standing there, ashamed, bundled up as best she could, maybe looking down at the ground, wondering, what's he going to say? And it's a prolonged silence. Because we're told that they keep asking him. They just keep asking him. So, well, well, what are you going to do about this one, Jesus? Come on now. You keep talking about grace. How does grace apply here? What are you going to do? Because this is an open, shut case. The law is very, very clear on this whole thing. And you said you, did, you came to fulfill the law, not to, not to destroy it. So, so what are you going to do with this? Jesus stops. 
And they keep pushing him and keep pushing him. And finally, these are his words. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And it says one by one, starting with the oldest, (laughs) which tells you something. (laughs) They drop their stones and they begin to walk away. This is really important. It says that Pharisees brought her as a trap, trying to trick Jesus and to trap him. And, and yeah, he conveniently got out of the trap, but this isn't, about, this isn't about getting out of their trap. This isn't about just a clever way of not being tricked. He's making a point. And the point that he's making is grace isn't just for the almost good enough like Nicodemus. Grace isn't for those who tried really, really hard, even though they came up short, but they tried really hard, and so because they made the effort, well, well, then we'll give them grace. See, the point that he is making is that grace, grace is for everybody. Grace is for everybody. Not just the almost make it kind of guys. Grace is for sinners. Grace is for sinners. And if you want to know who are the sinners, it's the person sitting next to you. And the person sitting next to them. Because we all are in desperate need of grace. Adulterers and accusers alike. Liars, cheats, murderers, gossips. Grace is for everyone. And it never runs out. We all need it. Because you see, if, if, if we all lined up and tried to jump across the canyon, I could jump five feet, you could jump 50 feet, the result is still the same because the canyon's 100 feet. <laughs> and it's not about how much closer you can get to the other side than me. Or how much closer to the other side I think I could get from you. About grace in an endless supply. And we all need it, and we will all never run out of our need for it. What's interesting is the only person who is truly qualified to throw that stone chooses not to. Jesus is the only one sitting there without sin. He's the only one who fulfills the requirement, and, the, and, and it's him who says, it is him who says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and now, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, understand, that was not a prerequisite for grace. He said first, no, I don't condemn you. Then he said, so now go and leave your life of sin. He didn't say, go and leave your life of sin and I'll not condemn you. It was not a prerequisite. The condemnation was removed first. The grace was dispensed first. And it was not a prerequisite. Do you think she walked away and never sinned again in her life? Do you? May not have been that sin. You see, we never run out of our need for grace. And fortunately, God never runs out of his supply. I believe when he says to her, now, 
go and leave your life of sin. What he is doing is he's giving her permission. He's giving her freedom. He's giving her a new start. He's saying to her, you don't have to keep living the way you were living. You can change. But he doesn't tell her that until he's already forgiven her. Because it starts with grace. And grace gives the opportunity for the fresh start. And I think one of the places that we see this most clearly in our own society is in recovery groups. We've got a recovery group that meets here on Monday nights. Recovery groups all over our city. There are people in, our, in recovery groups and they understand this concept probably better than anybody else. Because the thing about a recovery group, the door never closes. And somebody can be 20 years sober and mess up. But they can still come to a recovery group and start all over again. <laughs> That's Grace. Grace always gives the chance for another start. And it's been my prayer, our prayer as a church from our very, very beginning, that if there is anything that we are known for, if there is any reputation that we carry as a church, Lord, may it be that we are a place of grace. Because I don't care what other reputation we have as a church if we are known as a place for grace. And that means people come in here and they might be really messed up And they may have had second and third and fourth and fifth chances, but there's always a sixth. Because we're going to be a place of grace where anybody can come with whatever they've done and find forgiveness and acceptance and a fresh start. Because that's the message Jesus came to bring. And we will only be that kind of church if each of us learn how to be that kind of person. Grace is never earned. It's never depleted. It never runs out. But there's one thing it always does. Grace always tells the truth. God's grace always tells the truth. So now we get back to where John started with this whole thing. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now again, think about that, grace and truth. Jesus didn't balance. He didn't try to strike a balance between grace and truth. He fully fulfilled and embodied the full measure of both of those. He was always grace and he was always truth. And we will never get as clear and complete a look at what grace and truth looks like unless you look at Jesus. There was another, another uh, encounter that Jesus had, this time with the woman at a well. She was a Samaritan woman. And Jesus met with her and he talks to her about this whole idea that there is for you a new life. There is a fresh source of life. It's called living water and it's made available to you. And she gets involved in this conversation and starts asking him questions about that. And at some point in the conversation, Jesus says to her, okay, now go get your husband and bring him back here. And she says, kind of sheepishly, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. So what you said is quite true. (laughs) Now, that may not be such a big deal these days. You know, 
I mean, that, that, that's like almost common occurrence in our society. But in Jesus' day, that was unheard of. Five husbands. What's wrong with you? Five, five divorces. What's wrong with you? I mean, can't you get along with anybody? I mean, five guys have tried this. And then you, you've, just, just, you've just so given up on the whole idea. You're just living with this guy now. You haven't even gone through the, formal, you know, the formalities of marriage. Man, there must, you must just, wow, you, I, I've never met anybody like you. Why is Jesus, why does he bring that up? I mean, if he's full of grace, why, why does he dredge up her past? Why does he start bringing all this stuff up? I mean, isn't that like, isn't that getting a little personal, Jesus? Isn't that, aren't you kind of prying there? I mean, isn't that a little bit intrusive? What are you getting into all of her business for? Don't judge her. You know, you said don't judge unless you be judged. Don't you judge her. Why does he do that? Why does he bring all that up? I think because he wants us to understand that real grace is for real people. Not, not the nice public person and persona. Not the presentable image that I want you to see of me. But the real me. The real you. With your failures, with your mistakes... With my failures, with my mistakes, with my ups and downs and ins and outs and all the mess that I am. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not offering grace to this cleaned up image that you come here with before me today. I'm offering grace to the real you. With all your past, with your failures, with the sin that you're living in right now, It's the real you. It's the real you I want to give my grace to. If you went to buy a home and you hired a termite inspector to come in and you had him go through the whole house and he signed off on it and gave you a clean bill of health and you bought that house and the minute you started to do a little bit of remodeling, you found the place was just filled with termites. I mean, it was only the termites that were holding the walls up. And you went back to the termite inspector and you said, why didn't you tell me? I mean, that's what I hired you for. You were supposed to tell me if there were termites in this house. Why didn't you put it in the report? And if he said to you, well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. (laughs) And and I know you really like this house. And I didn't want to get in the way of making that house become a reality because this is your dream house. And I sure didn't want you to, to give up on your dream house because there were termites in it. And, and by, you know, I mean, if I said that, you wouldn't even like me anymore. <laughs> what would you say? But it was your job to tell me. If you brought your car to a mechanic that you were considering purchasing, and you had him do a diagnostic on the whole thing and tell you whether this was a sound thing, and he said he gave it a clean bill of health and said, man, you couldn't find a better used car than this one, and you bought that car, and you went drive off the lot, and the brakes gave out, and you had an accident, and you went back to the mechanic, and you said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I know you like that car, and I know you've always wanted one of those. And it was such a good deal, I didn't want to disappoint you. And besides, you've been a customer of mine for years. 
And if I told you something bad about the car, maybe you wouldn't bring your car to me anymore. What would you think of that? See, Jesus tells the truth, but he always tells the truth in a way that is grace. He was always truthful, but he used truth as an instrument of grace. Where the Pharisees made it as an instrument of accusation and condemnation, Jesus used the truth for grace, real grace for real people. And that's the deal. That's the deal. That's the message that he came to bring. That it is real grace. It is never earned. It is always given freely. And you never run out of it because we will never run out of our need for it. But he will always be honest with us. will always tell us the truth. will always make us face up to the truth about ourselves. Grace is a gift. It comes freely. But I want you to understand, it has a price. There's a cost to grace. And the cost to grace for me to receive, the cost is my pride. The cost is my pretense. The cost is my complacency. The cost, the cost is my self-sufficiency. There is a cost to me. Because I've got to face up to the truth. And in fact, I would say, if you extend grace to other people, there's a cost there too. Not that you demand from them. There's a price that you pay. Because when you choose to forgive somebody, you surrender your right to get even. When you choose to accept somebody who is not acceptable, when you choose to love somebody who is not particularly lovable, there is a cost, but it's a cost to you to give up your judgmental spirit and your right to declare who's acceptable and who's not. And the reason that you and I can pay that price is because Jesus paid the ultimate price. The one who had every right to condemn didn't condemn. How could he do such a thing? The one who could demand of Nicodemus something far more than Nicodemus could ever do for himself, how could he do such a thing? The man who dredges up the past of someone to expose who they really are, only to be able to extend forgiveness and grace and acceptance, how could he do such a thing? Because he paid the price. He knew the cost, and he paid it in full. And we're going to finish our time together this morning, sharing in communion. The reminder, not just of what Christ has done for us, but the people now that he's called us to be. People of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And it really comes down to our perception of God. How do you see God? Are you still trying to earn your way with Him? Are you still trying to prove your worth to Him? Are you still trying to pay a debt that you cannot possibly pay? Watch this. So I got a letter from my homeowners association about some violations, and it got me thinking. 
I think I treat God like he's the head of the HOA. <laughs> Follow me with this. HOAs have a bunch of rules. If you play by the rules, everything's great. But one little slip up. Here come the violation letters. I got a trash bag in my tree. Need to weed my plants. I gotta put my address on my mailbox. My fence wasn't approved. I'm always walking on eggshells worrying that I might do something wrong or get fined. But God doesn't work this way. He's not sitting on his throne waiting for me to mess up. Mm, grace and mercy are his style. You know, grace, unmerited favor, like I basically can do nothing to deserve it. God loves me unconditionally. There's no strings attached. God loves me even though I've got a bag in my tree, even though I need to weed my plants. He is so patient with me. Through his love, he nudges me on and encourages me to work on these things. So, no violation letters, just God's unending grace. Who is God to you? Is he a rule maker or is he a grace giver? You decide. you bow your heads with me. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.